0: Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. In addition to this podcast, please check out my latest book, Embracing Resistance to Change, Facilitating Change Differently Through the Paradox of Resistance, available now through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today, I'm visiting with Ron Banerjee, soon to be Dr. Ron Banerjee. Ron is a a colleague of mine and friend who is one of the vice presidents with the IOTA group, the International Organization Development Association Conference. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Ron because he's going to share some of his insights and I'm most excited to hear him talk about his um, rapid OD model that he's uh, developed and and used. And so, um, yeah, I'll just let Ron take it from there and and tell more about himself and more about his model. So welcome, Ron.
1: Hey, thanks, Jim. Always uh, good to see you. And uh, I'm excited to be here, too, to uh, just not only chat with you about uh, organization development and change management in general, but Also talk a little bit about the RROD model, the rapid response organization development model uh, that I've had some success with uh, since developing it back in 2020, uh, 2019, right around the time, uh, right before we got hit with the pandemic. So uh, it was apropos uh, at that time. So excited to be here. Thanks for asking.
0: You bet. So, walk us through the model, or or do you want to talk uh, kind of how how it came about? Or um, it the it's, it's the, the floor is yours, Ron.
1: Thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, the the rapid response O D model R R O D um, came about <laughs> in an interesting way. Um, you know, I. I my wife is a coordinator for the executive MBA program here at Penn State University. and I remember there was a point where I was asking one of the lead faculty people, well you know how much how much time do you spend on organization development and the MBA program you know for the executive MBA or any of the MBA programs for that matter And I got a wide range of different answers from different, faculty members, not only here at Penn State, but whenever I post that question to other people, you know, all around. Um, And, you know, in a lot of the management programs and uh, MBA programs, I said, you know, 20 minutes, (laughs) 45 minutes, you know, one, not even a day. I don't think I got a response of a day from anybody. Um, So that started me thinking, um and this was when I was doing my masters here at Penn State uh, in OD, uh, that, you know, what's what's the issue that they have with, you know, OD? What's the issue that they have in the way that we manage change versus you know what's being taught in some of our MBA programs across the United States and across the world for that matter? And a common criticism that I found was that um, OD is just such a long process, you know, going from contracting to whatever, you know. And by the time you get through all that, you know, the need may have changed. And so, um, you know, the the common thing that I saw was just how long an OD intervention changes or requires, I should say, before the changes actually are. Uh, you know able to be made or at least explored you know and so as we were as I was going through all of that and thinking through um, you know I had the opportunity great opportunity and I know Jim you you like this story you've heard it before but I had the opportunity for, to interview uh, Ed Shine. Um, you know the father of, uh, process consultation, uh, what a loss, to have lost him last year, but uh, I'm blessed that I got to spend uh, quite a bit of time. I wanted to do a two-minute clip for of him uh, thanking uh, somebody and congratulating somebody on an award, uh, Otto Sharmer at the OD Network um, uh, annual meeting, and it changed into a discussion about my work. And um, you know, Ed and I were talking about interventions and we came across this thing where we both believed that um, every conversation you have with somebody at a potential client or a client or whatever is is an intervention. And if you treat it as such, then you know a lot of people don't want to waste that other time with you know that the purist uh organization development folks you know uh attest to uh i'm a purist you know i uh, you know you know raised in od by dr bill rothwell and and uh you know he's often told me well you know what i i've stuck to the program and i've uh, turned around a large-scale intervention very quickly <laughs> and my response was well that's you doc you know like you know, uh, but that's how it came about, Jim, was uh, listening to the uh, listening to the criticisms of what I was studying, I guess. And I took it kind of personally. Uh, so that was about the speed. So and I noticed that when I did the research, there wasn't a whole lot of work that had been done on like a uh, ramping up the the speed of. Uh, the organization development process. So that's how our ROD can
0: yeah, that's I I can see that where you know that there's there can be a tendency for like the consultant to just kind of embed themselves in the organization and, and create this long term almost codependent type relationship as as opposed to um doing the intervention and, and getting you know and getting out. Um, I remember working with a manager years ago at an aircraft uh, facility and I was brought in for a particular challenge and, and the first meeting he said, all right, how long is this going to take? How many times are we going to have to meet? And I said, well, this could be the final meeting if we can get it resolved. And they were really taken aback because they just thought that it was going to be this, you know, long drawn out process. Now it wasn't resolved in that meeting, but, there was that perception that this is going to take forever.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, time is money to a lot of people. And, um, and I get that, um, as you know, uh, my background, as you know, is under, uh, I, you know, I work for Voya financial advisors as a financial advisor and investment management rep. And, um, You know, and also in my own businesses that I've started, you know, time is money. There's no doubt. When you bring in a consultant of any kind, you know, charge hourly or whatever, you know, the wheels are turning as they focus on their balance sheet and say, "Can I afford you or not?" But that, to me, is you know, uh, somebody told me a long time ago that value is only, or cost is only an issue in the absence of value, and so. It's up to us as practitioners to really, um, before we even, you know, get in there, really spend the time to focus on making sure the value is going to be uh, connected. So, you know, I mean, and say, look, you—if at one point, of, um, maybe I'm dating myself right now, but you know, if if you know, cost was always the issue then we would all be driving those uh, cars. What were they called? You go's, if you remember this, you know, like air conditioning drove at 50 miles per hour and rolled down your windows, you know?
0: (laughs) yeah. You know, there was no such
1: thing as air conditioning.
0: Yeah, and if you're in a wreck, you go.
1: go. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, whether you, you know, drive a Mercedes or you drive, you know, Honda Accord or whatever you drive, you know you're you're buying what you believe is the most value for your money, and you're willing to pay for that. So, you know, to practitioners that are listening that maybe are just getting started, um, you know, again, don't undervalue what you do, but spend the legwork uh, on on establishing that value. And you don't have to spend, you know, weeks and weeks and months and months and presentation after presentation, like you said, Jim, you know, you just have to go into this, especially if there is some sort of uh, emergent need that is happening. Uh, You have the opportunity to really go in there and from the get-go show your value to the rest of the world.
0: Do you you see many organizational consultants, many uh, OD professionals? having that value proposition in the contracting meeting?
1: I think they do. Uh, I don't think they spend enough time uh, because I think, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 I get it. Okay, let's move on. to Go do what what you need to do, you know. But I always feel like if I spend the time on that officially uh, as much as I can, uh, especially hand in hand with, uh, some of the key stakeholders and decision makers, then there's no question later on, you're not going to hit any bumps in the road. So in the model, and we'll get to that in a second, uh, but you're spending that time communicating effectively on on all of those issues and time together.
0: So um walk us through the the, the model and and I guess one thing that might be helpful too is, you know, how does it how does it um, compare or integrate or differ from like Cotters model or the or the uh, um, the Adcar model?
1: Yeah, I um, you know, I'm i uh, I'm a practitioner of, of Adcar, so I really believe in it,
0: and okay. I think I knew you had the ProSci um, certification, so I had to.
1: Oh, uh, that was that was a lot of fun, and I recommend it to anybody. Um, you know, pro um, you know claim the fame is that you explore the people side of change. and um you know it's really important. And I think, uh, with my background in that that it's sort of um, integrated into my model, uh, and I think you'll you'll be able to see it if you're familiar with that. If not, I would uh, really highly recommend. Uh, you know studying the our model uh because it really does focus on that stakeholder aspect and and getting back to the value connection that we were talking about you know really establishes that from the get-go um and when you get comfortable with it uh, it it really flies um but yeah you know one of the things that I guess maybe I'm challenging on is his belief that if you don't go through or if you skip any of the steps that he's talked about, um, you know, it it'll result in failure. Um, and I don't know whether I talk about skipping it, but I sure do kind of breeze through a couple areas and focus to the meat and bones of the, you know, what's required for uh, that change. And when you need that um, issue, and um, the best part of this is, it's like uh, it's a Prophylactic model, right, Jim, where if you introduce this to the decision makers, it's a quiver, it's an arrow in their quiver that they have. And it's a part of preparedness for those burning platform moments that are going to happen, you know, if you believe in that analogy or not, but just everybody has a situation where it might be emergent and that's where this all arises from. And the pandemic kind of put an exclamation point on my model development and to really delve into the decision-making processes that go on uh, when real-time change is necessary. Uh, Because again, going back to that purist OD model, it's not really, it feels like it's not created for real-time at the moment change. Right, if you think about it, it's kind of created for that change development over time and exploration of what those opportunities are. And the fact of the matter is that we just may not, the the companies or the organizations, we just may not have that uh, benefit of that time uh, to explore that and really spend the time. So we have to have something that will get you through that process uh to that decision that making point that tipping point where you know you've got to make it or break it at that moment. So this takes a lot of that into consideration. So that's what it kind of is based on is those decision uh making models. You know, and sometimes no matter what we do, um you know you know what hits the fan. So <laughs> uh you know for some companies and and you just do the best that you have the ability to do with um, the tools that you have, and so my goal is not only to assist in developing uh, tools internally in a true generative form, but to go in with a tool that they can, or you know, a template that they can follow to really um, build the the confidence uh, that leaders require during times. Places, you know, and, and really build on that.
0: So, yeah, and I, like, I like how you kind of you you use the phrase uh, like a fireproofing strategy. And and I know you um, you integrate in some of the ideas is you know about the organization being agile or fragile. So, um, talk about what you mean by a fireproofing strategy.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, you know, what the 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 best part of the you know I my presentation I call fireproofing or fireproof. Um and you know the whole idea of agile or fragile came from a series of articles that I had uh written just asking that question, like is your organization you're a your leader of an organization and is your um you know, is your organization agile, or you know, agile enough to be able to work through the change, or you know, or fragile? Will it collapse under its own weight and and indecision? So, really, what it became was, you know, can I build a way? Can I give you that arrow? Can I give you a, a way of protecting you from? future calamities future pandemics you know all those other uh things that might happen to the organization uh, a sudden loss of um uh, you know uh, key leadership or scandal or whatever you know there has to be a way and if there's not rather than scrambling and uh doggy paddling in the wa- in the water just to survive uh you have um you have a a tool, you have the life preserver to be able to get out of whatever you're dealing with. So it does, it builds that, having this in your arsenal builds that confidence uh, during that chaotic time and crisis time. And, um, you know, it's it's the four C's, what I, I call the four C's anyway, it's commitment, consistency, and continuous communication right through the whole thing and that was what my undergraduate was uh degree was in uh was in communication uh, speech communication uh here at Penn State and and so I guess I'm staying true to that as well but uh yeah that's kind of you know forming that strategy is um you know making the stakeholders understand um you know about building resilience and building you know, I know you've talked about that before, and and also in in your writing, Jim. Uh, which I, by the way, uh, we always have had a mutual admiration society. But I got to tell you, your book is phenomenal. So I, I really enjoyed that, and and it brings a lot of this building resilience so that you don't end up in this resistance to change kind of situation. Like right, if you put Thank the. You. If you put the time in before, then hopefully you'll never get to the point that you need guys like you and I to come in and say, why is there this? You know, why do we have to overcome this resistance to begin with or exhaustion from change, which is what my dissertation is. You know, so again, um, so that comes from let's prepare you uh, for that burning platform uh, moment where you are faced with a life or death decision, but in this case, the organization's possible life or death, uh, given what's going on uh, and what is impacting the organization as it stands. So that's kind of where the background of it uh, really comes from. And uh, that combined, it was like a perfect storm to be honest with you, Jim. Here I am thinking about all this stuff, and one dot connected to another, and then the pandemic. came. And you know, uh, I started listening to how the crisis managers were—I um, don't know—getting out in front of things, and you know, holding maybe a press conference from a particular company. Um, and I didn't think they did the best job. I don't think they really understood it. I don't think they had an action plan in place. So that's fireproofing. Is that action?
0: Yeah, and there's certainly, in hindsight, you could you could rattle off or or identify organizations that you could tell they were agile because of how they. And I'm not a fan of the word pivot, but how they responded and and and. And, and use the word respond as opposed to react, how they responded to uh, COVID and the pandemic. And then the ones that were fragile um, really either struggled and some just went under. Correct. Right.
1: Yeah. And some, you know, even if they survived that, the beginning of it, they're struggling even still, you know. I mean, heck, look, I mean, look at our country right now, you know, people can say we're struggling still to get out of the after effects of the pandemic. You know, and it um, doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, you know, do we have an action plan? Um, you know, I had a discussion with uh, David Cooper, writer, um, at uh, a recent conference, uh, and it was about this: it was about, wow, you know, do we have the tools that are available to us to be able to um, really, you know, challenge ourselves to be better at our responses and quality responses to these types of crises, right? So, um, you know, if, if there's a sense of urgency that a leader should have that gives them a, a way of inoculating against uncertainty, if you think about it. And I think that's what uh, this model helps us do. Um, and that fireproofing process, which leads into the model is, you know, understanding the, the psychology of, of what is going on in that moment of crisis. And, you know, when we think about agile, are we talking about just the agile software or the agile, you know, process that is out there that you get certified in and and what's true agility, you know? And the thing is for each organization, Jim, the uh, agility of that organization means something very different. You know, I'm on the board of a a great um, group called Meals on Wheels of State College. And, you know, what for us to be agile and being able to respond during the pandemic. I mean, suddenly, wow, you know, there were so many people that, I mean, they're locked away in their homes and not being able to get out out of fear, you know, of the pandemic and how do we get food to all these people? And again, there's that crisis moment where we have to figure out what to do and, um you know, I talk about how you build coalitions and collaborate, and and so trying to get you know everybody on board. Local, you know, local providers, uh, Sam's Club, Walmart, you know, our local supermarket uh, chains, uh, Penn State, obviously, uh, for helping us. You know, maybe with hand sanitizer or masks or anything like that. So you know, that's are you really agile? Um, in, on your own terms. Um, then I think people that define change in a bunch of different ways. You know, I mean, again, you talked about it in terms of change resistance, you know, like change to certain groups or certain people means one thing, but, you know, to others, it means something completely different. And before, uh, you, know, before you know it, you've got a group that is really resisting the type of change that another group is trying to promote. And it creates a conflict that you so aptly talked about. So, um, so again, that's the meaning of change. Understanding it, um, you know, understanding how handling change is um, isn't necessarily the same way you would handle change any time else. You know, um, you know, other than in this case, while you're in crisis. Um, so that I think is one of the other important parts is how you may Handle change when things are great, or when things maybe aren't so great, but it's not you don't have an emergent situation. Well, that certainly can be different from something when you're facing the types of crises that I mentioned before. And then that leads to you know having that ability and what you can do uh, during that time, and that leads to that uh, rapid response ID, idea of uh, OD, you know. Um, so when I do the presentation, I kind of go through all of those different types of, um, you know, change and, and, you know, understanding, you know, what the different types of people and the psychology behind, um, behind all of those factors are, you know? Um, and then also people, you know, are they thinking, does this have to be this massive change or is it time for radical change? You know, uh, you know, or is it time for just incremental change? You know, and and so some believe that it with you know a series of incremental changes you can create radical change. I would agree with that to a certain degree. That's kind of the systems thinking basis uh, of of what RRD stems from as well. You know, in its roots. Uh, so it's about this. You know. Uh, understanding Lewin at its very source level, you know, uh, about moving from one state to, you know, the current state uh, to, you know, a state of transition and to get to what future future state you wanna get to, right? So if that's at the basis, you know, if we follow Lewin, um, what we find is that, you know, the current state might be something where it's just panic driven and, and people are rooted uh, during the crisis. They're just rooted in whatever they're comfortable with. And it's that powerful, you know, almost a kidnapping of, of reasonable thought, you know, out of panic. Um, and then it shifts into that emotion where now the emotion is really gripping, you know, people throughout the organization. And no matter how much you're pushing that transition, you're not getting it. And your people are getting frustrated, and the leaders are frustrated, and then they're throwing their arms up in the air. And then, you know, people on the front lines feel like nobody cares. You know, what am I gonna do if, if the pandemic creates such a problem that you're gonna lay us all off? How am I gonna feed my thing, you know? And then of course, you know, the problems with uh, the future state is, None of us know what to expect, and um, you know we need to spend enough time understanding that as leaders and as change leaders to be able to uh, look at that from a, where is everything coming from, and and taking the time to explore that within our communities, internal communities, uh, our coaching communities that we've developed inside for some of our uh, middle leaders and, and key stakeholders to really work on that with the rank and file. Yeah, I so, think that's
0: one of the things that you mentioned, um, getting time with, uh, David Cooper writer. And I think that's one of the, um, uh, pieces around his appreciative inquiry process that, that future state and, and, and being able to vision that and imagine it, um, and have conversations around it, I think is, is so important.
1: Yeah, and David's, uh, you know, again, if you've ever had a chance or if you haven't had a chance to hear David speak or go to one of his workshops, I, I highly recommend it. But, you know, David right now is working on uh, something uh, called Earthshot OD, And the belief is that we are, poised. we are in a position right now, uh, this Earthshot moment, that uh, we can really make a difference in the world as OD professionals, right? We can really impact change in a variety of different ways. And and, uh, so how do we do that? And that's his Earthshot OD uh, take on things. Yeah, if you get a chance, I would uh, recommend to your listeners to uh, take a look at some of his writings regarding Earthshot OD. And I know uh, we have some recordings, I think at OD Network uh, of the conference uh, the summit uh, last year in 2023 uh, that should help that out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, let's, let's actually, I'm going to go ahead and jump to the model for the sake of time. Um, but I think one of the the things is, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a golf story that somebody told me. And that was, you know, what makes a really good golfer different from one of the pros, right? And this ties in with this repetition factor that we talk about and and fireproofing the organization, right? And the idea is like, you know, the difference between a Tiger Woods or, you know, Rory McIlroy or whoever is, I heard this story about these guys, I, I went to a golf tournament. And I went into the trailer where Nike builds their golf clubs for the pros that are playing that. So I got to see all of the different pieces of the golf clubs. And I was talking to the guy who crafts all of them. And he said, yeah, you know, this is what, here are some of the measurements I have for Tiger, you know, here's Rory's stuff. And he's like, pointing these out, Jim. And what was amazing is he was telling me for a different condition, these guys are so good. You and I, when we get out in golf, got I, I don't want anybody to see me in golf, but when I'm out there, you know, bring Kevlar. That's all I've got to say. Um, but yeah, you know, when we're always changing, adjusting our swing, you know, to meet what the environment dictates. These guys are so good; their swing changes to the point that. Um, you know, Rory, when he was training, I heard from a friend of mine who was a good friend of his, he said, these guys are so good that you would be able to take a towel. The coaches would take a towel and put it on the fairway and that these guys were so dialed in that they would have to hit that towel and make the adjustments, not in their swing, but hit that swing so consistently that they would be able to know which swing they were going to uh you know they're going to rely on their pure swing to get there and then change the club to do what it needs to do right so that started getting me thinking of like well listen if we have it already ingrained in what we're doing um and our swing and we perfect our swing well then all we need is the right tool to hit that target, right? And that's where I tied that in. I was like, wow, if I can get my clients to keep using this tool and getting really good at it, then when the time comes of that crisis, uh, you know, don't have what it takes to really pull it and really pull it. And we seen companies that don't handle it well. You know, uh I don't know, Jim. I think you told me a story uh of a particular company. Again, they just didn't handle it well at all and it was horrible, right? Yeah. You know. Um, so again, uh, let's uh you know, do you have any other you know questions before we dive into this? I know we're strapped for a little time and
0: no, no, I I, I like that 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 golf analogy, and yeah, it, it kind of the that idea of the of the the mental learning and the repetition, and it kind of reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's um, research around the the ten thousand hours kind of as that um, area that that where that really kicks in. Yeah, yeah, I,
1: uh, I and another thing from my background. I went to a dinner a long time ago uh, when I was a senior in high school and it was for the Horatio Alger Society. And if you haven't ever read the books about you know, Horatio Alger, it's, you know, uh, Rags to Riches comes literally from that story, you know? And so uh, the society was based on, you know, um, Hopefully, we don't. We can help people out of their uh, economic status or challenge, and help them to really uh, succeed, right? And so, I had the opportunity at that dinner to sit with W. Clement Stone, who um, you know started Money Magazine. Who was uh, the head of I forget which insurance company, but I mean. This guy was a character, if you ever read about him. But I remember we were sitting there and he, you know, a bunch of 18-year-old, 17-year-old kids dressed in tuxedos and, you know, ball gowns sitting there. And of course, you know, you're going to ask, well, you know, Mr. Stone, what what do you, uh, how, what kind of guidance can you give us? And, you know, he had this cane and he pulls it up and he starts slamming it on <laughs> on the table on the dining table and uh things are flying everywhere it's like repetition 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 that's the key to success you know and i'll never forget that so uh that's kind of baked into this too right so it, uh, it,
0: yeah. uh, I, I think a great a, a great tie into that with is the idea of of action research the repetition of and, and and I don't think we're a lot of organizations want um, that, you know, the data collection and the feedback and then continuing on. And I know in your model, you talk about it being like that execution looping. Right. right? And, and that kind of reminds me of, of the, the idea of, of in design thinking of rapid prototyping that trying things out quicker and, you know, that repetition, you actually will finish quicker in the long run. Um, And it's so in some ways it's counterintuitive.
1: And I think, you know, in the whole design thinking aspect, the more you delve into that, I think you find people that, you know, even, you know, I I struggled with that a little bit where, you know, just the speed that was expected of me to do something. um, We were working on a project at Penn State and I took it as you know one way, but the team lead, uh, you know, he took it a different way, and I was like, "Whoa! I thought I was doing this, but I guess I'm not doing, it. you know, the the way that, you know, this rapid prototyping process that he was referring to was not the same as what I thought it was, right?" So I think I yeah I I think you're spot on that the more time and and the more we uh, repeat these processes and they become second nature. I mean, that's what this is all about, Um, you know, and getting to that in the first stage of the rapid uh, response OD model, um, it aligns with Lewin's unfreezing uh, stage. It aligns with uh, Cotter in the sense of the first three uh, items on Cotter, you know, establishing a sense of urgency, forming a guiding coalition, developing a vision, um, you know, all right, that makes sense, you know. And then if we look at systems thinking, you know, and uh, and Peter Senge and, and in his first stage of initiating whatever that change is or igniting that change, you know, he talks about all of that. So it's sort of tied in with Cotter and Lupin in that first phase or those three phases of Cotter. And then you get to the first kind of clear uh, you know, steps, the first three steps in rapid re- response OD and RROD. And that is, well, during this time of this black swan moment, this burning platform moment, you're going to identify the key constituencies within your organization. Now, getting back to that fireproofing concept, right? What if you did this ahead of time? What if you said to your organization, hey, um, gang, we're going to put leaders in these positions that if we are ever in a crisis situation, these people are going to be the lead leads in our constituents, right? And that they know what to do, they're equipped with what to do, and then you as a rank and file member, you know you're gonna report to this person. And that's no different than saying, hey, if the building catches on fire, be sure to follow this route out of this exit so that you're not tripping over the other people, right? Um, so again, another fire analogy there, but that's kind of <laughs> the way it is. Um, the other thing is by doing that, and this is sort of where card comes in, is that by that level of engagement, you are creating that confidence uh, in the leadership. You're showcasing the leaders are in control of what's going on during this time of absolute chaos and crisis. And uh, again, you can dial that. You can say, well, my crisis level is a one out of 10, or it's a 12 out of 10. This all these steps still work. So the final part of that preliminary unfreezing to get to that sense of urgency, that guiding coalition, that initiate um, you know, initiating change, all of those from those previous models, it's create this RROD change dream team. Really identify those stakeholders that are gonna make this work, you know, when you need it. When you press the back signal, right, and it turns on, suddenly you have the 12 people that you, you know or your change, you know, your ROD, ROD dream team, you know, they're gonna respond right away and say, Okay, my, you know, am I using uh the red series, the yellow series, or the green series, right? You know, of actions that I need to take. So then when you start doing that. You kind of move into that next level or tier of, you know, the actual change of Lewin, or you know where Cotter talks about, uh, communicating the vision where you want to, you know, where you where you intend to go, how you empower others to act on that vision, and you're planning, um, and enabling short-term views where you want to move from one to another to move yourself forward, right and that ties in with the systems thinking you know when peter talks about you know sustaining momentum how do you create that momentum you don't just we're not just full throttle you know it takes a little bit of incremental movement to get you there and then you build up that speed well in the second tier or second phase of RROD, it's you are you're uh, communicating, you know, this moment, this burning platform moment, this black swan. You're effectively communicating what's going, on. and as you do that, you start building those stakeholder coalitions to inspire that design thinking that we just talked about. You know to inspire creativity and inventiveness and innovation for how are we going to handle this? You know, and it's not going to be coming from Mount Olympus and the C-suite necessarily, but now we have a way that the C-suite is engaged with those on the front line that may have the actual better idea on how to deal with this than those up on Mount Olympus or even, you know, our middle manager. So if we prepare them, fireproof the organization and get them to this point on the second tier, we're lined lined up pretty well for the final tier. And that is when we get back to refreezing, you know, according to Lewin or according to Cotter, you know, solidifying what that change is going to be and looking for other changes that we can build from that. And then, Creating an anchor, right? So, co- talks about creating that anchor as as you know a basis for new growth. Right, a foundation. And so again, that gets the systems thinking, right? With redesign and rethinking the problem, so that we never are in a problem again, or a similar problem to that again. Or let better, let's keep it better. How to do this, so that lines up the final steps. uh, I call them the four R's of RROD. That's reevaluate, revise, repurpose, and repeat. So reevaluation is exactly what we just talked about. You know, we take a look, we we see where we are in the process, and did we accomplish what we needed to, or is there more work to be done? So then if there is more work to be done, then we revise what we do and come up with a different game, plan, right? It sounds like common sense. Isn't it surprising how many people fall short in this process on any of these models, right? They don't go through to the end because they think they're already there and they're really not. Um, And then you repurpose the resources that you made available that you had already and then add the the resourcing that you now have to have targeted to help with prevention and preparation. And then like you said, the execution looping aspect of this which wraps around the entire model um, and also it's within each tier, each phase. And it's also from the beginning to the end, and the end to the beginning again, and going through this model as many times as you need to until you have the comfort in the solution.
0: Yeah, and I, I think a couple key pieces that kind of jump out at me is is, is that that need for credibility, the the credi- credible credible uh, voice of leadership, and then and then part of that that coalition, the dream team, is really having the right people involved in the change right and and oftentimes it's not the people that are going to be doing the change that are involved right and so um and then you know when you mentioned that about common sense i love the quote from mark twain who said the funny thing about common sense is it ain't very common
1: (laughs) and and the more you work in our field i think we find that and
0: i i i take it the I when I talk with leaders, I talk about, okay, yeah, it's common sense. But what we want to do is we want to turn common sense into common practice. Oh, interesting. Where where it actually becomes, you know, the behavior changes, because it's one thing to say, yeah, it's, you know, like as as a teenager, you knew what the rules were at your house. Did you follow them? Right. (laughs) I mean, you know, knowing and doing are two different things.
1: Well, and that gets back to our agile and fragile you know, discussion, right, is are you really agile in the sense that you have the ability to to adjust on the fly and really rebalance things and move things, you know, and shift things the way that you need to, or are you really fragile? You know, you may think you're agile, but in fact, you discover as you peel back all the layers of the onion, you know, you're more fragile than you thought you so I think that's um, that's where it ties in with the work that our colleagues uh, do, you know, and what we do. And that's why it's so important. That's why, you know, it's this earth shot moment, this you know, this uh, you know, alignment of the stars to really make a difference and try to find some Instead of battling, finding some common ground on the environment or whatever. And I think there's plenty of people that are willing to do that. It's just for us to lead with courage to be able to, when we find ourselves in those positions, to put ourselves out there and really make it happen and stand firm for certain things, but be able to have those dialogues. You know, again, it's communication oriented, all of these things, you know. But the idea is you are in charge of creating that momentum that, you know, Peter talks about in in systems thinking, and, and that is you're you're sustaining that momentum by those by what by what I opened up with by those conversations that Ed was talking, you know, those are the interventions, and you keep going back to those conversations, and you're prepared now to have those discussions with the people, the rank and file. your frontline managers, you know, your ancillary, you know, uh product managers, your vendors that provide you resources, you know, you're you're ready. You know, so it's creating that organizational readiness that um that's what you're doing. That's what you're the lead on using RROD. And um, you know, I've I've received some great feedback on it. I've used this in in situations and the great thing is, it applies to any organization, right? You know, I use it, uh, you know, I, uh, I was a national officer for a volunteer officer for my college fraternity, and I used it at chapters to really make a difference. And we changed around uh, using this, you know, functionality of this model, we changed the typical fraternity from. Being a lower, you know, oh, I don't care where who we are, and, you know, we're going to party and do stupid things to changing it around to be the most improved chapter in our organization by creating these like mini constituencies. So if I can do that with 18 and 19 and 20 year old kids and 21 year olds that are, you know, who knows what and are in the news for all the wrong things instead of all the right things they do. Well, how about shifting and preparing so that we can move things proactively to have more good things than bad things? What are we doing to make the changes? Because, well, you know, in my opinion, again, um, I'm writing an article on this and hopefully I'll get it published. But it's, you know, the question, the timing is now, you know? group Life, the timing is now is the title, you know, is or, you know, is it time for a... Right, because it really lends itself to this—not in the crisis mode, in the fire. Mode.
0: Yeah, and I've—I've I've heard years ago. I—I I, I don't know where I heard the phrase, but—but but the idea of asking—is your organization change ready or change resistant? And you know, from at a cultural level, we go. The thing that I really like about your model is it provides a, a, a means, a vehicle to help an organization be change ready versus change resistant.
1: And uh, yeah, I, I, again, it aligns with your work. I know in change resistance, like I said, and, and I really like that because, you know, the idea is to rather than going, you know, from change resistance to literally non-compliance, which is what my dissertation talks about, um, you know, what's that tipping point when it, shifts into something that could be so detrimental. Where how can we punch through that resistance with something that is going to connect, that is going to flip that switch to get that realignment, right? Get that back to that resiliency and it, that acceptance. And do that as many times as you need to or that your system can handle it, you know, to make it. So I think that's it. And if anybody wants, uh, you know, I've written chapters on how to use RROD as a, a large scale intervention. Uh, there's a, a, a book that's out on that, or using RROD and creating a coaching culture. So th- there, there's a lot of these different aspects. Uh, you know, DEI, I know it's taking heat right now, but if you believe in you know, the intent of DEIB and everything else and we can scale it so we can find that common ground approach to um, making a difference that way. You can use this model to have those dialogues and really create that connection. Uh, I just authored another chapter in a text about creating um, DEI and extending it beyond your organization, connecting it with uh, the community and how we go about doing that and again i use this model to be able to do that so you know what do they say you know the names have been changed to protect the innocent you know <laughs> so,
0: so for my listeners um what is the best way for them to um find some of these resources to, would it be to connect with you through linkedin or to look look at your linkedin page
1: yeah i i think um that's Probably the best way. Um, you know, because then they
0: can find information about the couple of books that you've published in.
1: Absolutely. And and if it's not there, you know, I'm gonna see if I can uh share the uh the chapters up there, you know how copyright stuff is. But I'll do what I can. Uh but yeah, look me
0: up well, on... you need, need to get the whole book. Yeah.
1: And and I think and that's the thing, you know, um each books are written uh my colleagues, the other writers, in each of these books. Um, now we're on our. Well, different people have written these, but you know I'm on my fourth book, and uh, wow. they, they're really, helpful. you know, they're really helpful on. You know, one is on pure OD interventions. You know, the you know the other, like I said, is on coaching and the final one is you know on od and how it applies to dei work uh that's going on and then the second one in that series is that connection out of your organization but you know if you look at all of these ideas then it's fantastic so i would recommend that yeah looking up. Uh, i have a profile that is kind of blah for my financial advising practice and due to compliance reasons i uh, uh, a firewall with the other my OD work that I do, um, and you'll notice you know, the activity difference. But it's S. Ron Banerjee is waiting. Yeah, know I was going to say
0: when they see, yeah, you're. I, I don't think there's a lot of Ron Banerjee's out there.
1: <laughs>
0: well, they're getting more and more evidently. I find out, and you know, one is a guy that is pretty colorful and
1: not the way that I would want to be known. So my mother, I don't want her to read about him thinking. <laughs> son doing this stuff i'll
0: make i'll make sure that, that i link it to the right one on a uh, point yeah. them in the right direction but to,
1: anybody you know jim if they contact you uh you know you can share my contact information with them and then depending on uh what we can work out but i'd love to see some of them and hey i'm going to get in a plug for our beloved iota i'd love to meet some of your uh listeners and and the practitioners at our uh at our conference in
0: mexico city or anywhere else yeah uh, mexico city is around the corner uh october uh of this year right so yeah, yeah so
1: that would yeah. be that'd be great And know the park the conference is at uh, case western reserve around the same time of year
0: awesome well ron thank you for your time it's you. it's, it's it's always a pleasure catching up and um you, your your ideas are, are infectious. So I appreciate it.
1: I I, I hope it was uh, valuable. Um, and my friend, anytime I get to spend with you is always good. And, uh, you know, looking forward to hanging out as well. Uh, hopefully sometimes. Thanks again for having Thanks. me. Thanks well, take care, Ron. Thanks again.
0: Bye. Bye now. I hope you've enjoyed listening to chatting about change with Dr. Jim Maddox. If you want to connect more, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and at my website, drjimmaddox.com. Thanks for listening.